Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org. One of my favorite movies now is the, the, the Santa Claus during the Christmas time with Tim Allen. And my favorite scene out of Santa Claus is when he goes to the teacher's Christmas party and he pulls out a bag for Secret Santa. And when he pulls out this bag of Secret Santa, he, he unpacks all these gifts. I mean, rock 'em, sock 'em robots, toss across. And I'm telling you, in that scene, I had every single one of those games. Everything you see there, we had it as a family. I mean, my parents had six kids. They had to entertain them somehow. So every game known to man we had. I, I mean, I'm watching the first, I had that, and I had that, and I had that. And I still have some of those things in my toy box. Uh, they're probably worth money now. But the best game that we probably played all the time that it didn't come in a box was hide and seek. I'm thinking it's one of the first games we learned to play. It's one of the first games I played with little Hazel May. I mean, she wasn't very good at it. Uh, it seems like she didn't get the concept of what really hiding was. But she's pretty good now. And that gravitated to where what we didn't call hide-and-seek because that was for children. We played ditch when we got a little older. You remember ditch? I mean... In, in our neighborhood, we lived in a horseshoe of houses out in the middle of the country. I mean, there was nothing else around here. So we were contained. And, you know, especially during those summer hours, it's, you know, everyone would come out from outside. And we'd play ditch. Yeah, the rules were simple. You couldn't go in people's backyards. You had to stay in the front. And you, there was a limit to how many houses you could go. But we played that for hours. And I have to say, I was a champion. And here's why. I'm not very patient in a lot of things, but when it comes to games and when it came to ditch, I could outweigh everybody, all right? I mean, there was just simple rules. First, you had to find a good spot, right? You had to find a good spot, use the surroundings around you, dig in, and here's the ultimate rule. Don't move. Don't make a sound. And I was good at that, believe it or not. I mean, I could dig in and not make a sound even if I was the guy looking, I would dig into a spot and I would just wait. And I would wait. And I knew part of my brother, some of my brothers could not wait. They would make a move. They would make a sound. They would do something. They couldn't stand the waiting process. I always won this game. We even had it up in the cabin. We had a, a place in the forest where we played war, basically hide and seek. Sticks were Guns, pine cones, or grenades, all right? And the, here's the deal. You would go in, and then this other person's job to find you. And my brother, James, I mean, we just had fun doing this, but I knew I would always win because I'd find a spot, dig in, and wait. And then the pine cones would start flying. And, of course, I won these things because I'm good at hiding. I'm good at seeking. How many of you guys play that? You guys play hide and seek? Is it easy to play hide-and-seek today? And when I mean hide-and-seek, I don't mean hide-and-seek the game where our friends or family are trying to find us, but kind of hiding from God. I mean, we think we can. Um, we go and do our things. Like That's why I like that video of the basement. Um, the 
first hide-and-seek game in the Bible is found in Genesis 3. So if you have your Bibles, go there, Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were hiding from God, if that were possible. Genesis 2, I mean, Genesis 1 is the story of creation, and so you have a story of creation, and where God made everything you smell, eat, touch, that all happened in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the creation of man. Then God creates the Garden of Eden, giving it to man, and then God creates Eve. Chapter 3, that's where the story begins because Adam and Eve are, is told a specific thing. Do not eat of the tree that I've planted in the center of the garden here. That's the only tree you can't eat of. And I know I've talked about this before, but for some new people, we may need to repeat. There was only one tree that they could, a thousand trees they could, but not one of them. And I asked this question when I, when I was just seeking out God. I've been asked this question a thousand times. Why would God plant a tree in the middle of the garden that would tempt them? Isn't that like putting Snickers around a guy trying to lose weight? I mean, what, why would he do that? I mean, why would he purposefully put that there? And as I've said many times, guys, for love, to be true love, there has to be a choice. If all of a sudden you, you came to me and said, Tim, man, I've been looking for the right person. Is match.com, all that stuff don't work. I said, I got the perfect person for you. And I set up a date. And you go on a date, you call me, Tim, she was amazing. I mean, she, everything I've been looking for in this woman, she was it. And months go by. And about month four, you find out, it just slips, that I was paying her to go out with you. A matter of fact, every time she kissed you, she got a bonus. I guarantee you, first trying to figure out how you're going to get rid of my body at that point in time, but you would be angered. Tim, you can't buy love. You can't pay for that. Love, to be true love, has to have a choice, and that's why there was a choice in the garden. Now, understand, at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, it says this. One of my favorite verses of the Bible. Man and his wife were both, say it together, naked. That's my favorite word, one of my favorite words. And they felt no shame. I mean, there was no, nothing to hide. I mean, er, everything was right there. And they had no shame. And I don't think any of us in the room can say that is true of us, where we've never had I mean, I, I, I can't even begin to think about the concept of shame. I mean, shame comes in all different kind of things. I mean, there's shame for what we've done, and there's shame for what has been done to us. I mean, if we're all on a, have we experienced shame? Raise your hand. Have you experienced shame at some point in time? Okay. Now lean over to the person next to you and tell them what it was. No, don't do that. Don't, 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 don't. Wow, this is getting deep all of a sudden. We've experienced that. We've experienced shame. And in Genesis 7, after 
the eating of the apple where Eve was tempted and ate and gave it to Adam. And men do not say, well, see, it's all the woman's fault. I mean, I wouldn't be in this condition if it wasn't for you. Understand, men, you were standing right there. Adam was standing right next to Eve and kept his mouth shut until she shoved an apple in her. I mean, I mean this is both and. They both did exactly what God told them not to do. And in Genesis 3-7, it says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the first time shame has ever entered the world, has entered the garden. Now, is there a difference between guilt and shame? Yes or no? To some degree. I mean, they both kind of are in the wake of sin, both guilt and shame. There's a guy by the name of Ed Welch that wrote a book, Shame Interrupted. And he kind of talks the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt, he says, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, feels like something outside of you, while shame is, feels like it's welded to you. Guilt refers to our legal status before God. Shame refers to our feelings. It's action-based guilt. But shame is more identity-based. In your notes, there's a place to ask the question, when was the first time you remember feeling shame? I mean, I sat and tried to remember. I started jotting some things down. It was a good and bad time all at the same time of stirring things up a little bit. I mean, one of the things that I wrote down, I said, I, I can share this, is that, you know, growing up as a kid, and I've said this before, but growing up as a kid, my brothers knew. I can't remember my sister ever doing it. She probably did, but my brothers were good at it. Is that if they ever wanted to get me riled up, they'd call me fat pig. And just like football, it's not the guy who throws the first punch that gets the flag. It's the guy that throws the second punch. And they knew that I would get riled up. I mean, please don't test that. I keep saying do not come up and we test it because I'll have to ask forgiveness what I do to you for at that moment. Um, but all my life that has stuck with me. I mean, these two pictures I have up here. This is me skiing. Now, this is in short pants, by the way, but it's June 17th at Tahoe. There's 35 feet of snow on June 17th. And Fred and I go up there and go skiing. This is our, my wife's wedding picture. That's not my twin skinny guy. That's me. And here's the deal. In both those photos, I thought I was fat. Uh, it hasn't mattered what size. I mean, guilt is something that I really can take away with. Shame is what follows me all the time. Uh, Brene Brown says this about Shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Now, it's possible to be guilty without being shameful, being, being, having shame. And it's also possible to have shame without guilt. And honestly, sometimes shame with guilt because of our sin is a good thing from the standpoint is that that's usually where remorse comes in 
I mean, many times people are shamed or feel guilty because they got caught, not necessarily what they did. That's where remorse comes in. When I combine that of not only, yeah, I got caught, but at the same time, look what this action did in this whole thing. And so I have no idea what you might be carrying shame wise. Maybe it's a hidden secret. No one knows about it. Maybe it's financial debt you're carrying, a sexual past, a sexual present, addiction, something you did a long time ago that always keeps coming up. And here's the deal with shame is that somehow my mind connects that. Now, I'm not going to give Satan the credit, you know, Satan makes me think that way because if Satan could, and I say this, if Satan could put thoughts in my mind, he would never stop. I've got my sinful nature to help out in that process, okay? I mean, the devil can do things on the outside, but he can't do, my mind is, the devil, devil's not in there. I have enough stuff that my mind works off. But all of a sudden, my mind's connected, and I start going through this list of I'm defective, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm flawed. Dirty, I'm impure, I'm disgusting, I'm unlovable, I'm weak, I'm pitiful, I'm insignificant, and I'm unworthy. And the power of shame is it's like that record player that keeps playing, and as that needle keeps digging, the grooves deeper and deeper and deeper as it keeps playing over and over and over in my past. There's a book written by Heather Nelson. It's called Unashamed, Healing Our Brokenness and Finding Freedom from Shame. She says a couple things about shame. Uh, I think it's well worth the read. First off, shame can arise from others' sins against us. I know in this room there are people, because I can say that in any group of people, that there's a certain percentage of you who have been sinned against. Whether it be a family member, whether it be a friend, where someone has done something to you to create the shame. And I wish with all my might I could take that away. Um, and it leaves us in a vulnerable state, this shame does. And the thing is, it's funny how the not funny, haha, it's funny that the victim can carry more shame than the perpetrator can. There's shame that arises not only from what people do to us, there's shame that arises from some past sin that haunts us. I mean, sin has consequences. I mean, some are short-lived and some are, for the rest of our life, the consequences And somehow, many times in our mind, we can't separate what I've done from the fact that I have a hard time believing that God has taken that away. And when I read scriptures, when he says he's cast it as far as east as from west, which is pretty far, but I don't think mine he did that way. Maybe yours, but not mine. 
they have a hard time believing that our sin's been nailed to the cross and no longer has power anymore when it keeps playing in our mind. Heather Nelson says this, it's one thing to believe that your sin has been removed from you. It's quite another to believe that there is a divine love that can never be removed from you. You catch that? I mean, I may have a concept, okay, all right, my sin might be removed, but I think at the same time, but God's love is removed from me. And that's not true. And the shame acts like a barrier, if you will, that keeps me from loving or letting myself be loved along the way. Sometimes shame, we try to get rid of our shame by passing it to others, and then instead it just multiplies. This is not true of all perfectionists, but perfectionism can be a way of hiding shame. That Maybe if I do everything so good, because I was shameful for not doing it right, then that way I can get rid of the shame. Or I become... I have a critical nature because I was criticized so much and I criticize myself so much, I just do that to other people. Um, and it becomes a generational cycle. If a mother was shamed for her body, then how easy it is for her to shame her daughter. Or a husband who had a father who belittled him all the time or maybe a boss that is so harsh on him, how, how he does not take that to his children. Shame also hides our creativity because if you don't believe you're good, if you don't believe you deserve things, you've been told all your life you don't, then that creativity can be locked away. Because even when it appears all of a sudden, no, that's not true because I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And shame begins to affects, affects our relational connections. All of a sudden, it's deeply rooted in shame, and so we have a hard time connecting with other people because we say, if you really knew me, if you really know, knew what I've gone through or what I've done, you would not want to hang around with me. And that self-defeating thought almost becomes self-fulfilled prophecy. Even though there's a desire to connect, we keep pushing people away because we're fear. Why should I let people in? Because they're just going to reject me anyway. And we sabotage any opportunities that we may have. Shame is a powerful tool that the enemy uses. In Genesis 3, 8 through 9, it says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Did God not know where Adam was? I mean, <laughs> really? I mean, just the concept that we think we can hide from God. Really? You can hide from God who sees everything? So why was he calling? Where are you? One writer said, this is God, God's first word to fallen man has all the marks of grace in it. 
that Adam <laughs> trying to hide from God and even crazier. God knew where he was, but he still wanted to pour out to him. Where are you at? I mean, I think some of us have a concept of God of, well, God should have just started over right at that point in time. It's funny is that there's Jewish historians. I would watched a, a Jewish rabbi talk about this moment. He says that the Jews believe, the sect of Jews believe that Adam was created and nine hours later he ate the apple. I don't know where they got nine hours, but when I read that, I go, no, that's hilarious. That's us, right? I mean, how, let's time it, how long it'll take before we blow it type thing. Whether it's nine hours, nine days, doesn't matter. What's important, God is still seeking after Adam. Guys, the Bible, if you put this in, in a sentence, God wants a relationship with that which he, he created with you. That's mind-blowing when you think about it. He's still looking for you. Verse 10 says, he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Not only the first time shame enters the garden, but the first time fear enters the garden. Funny how the most commanded thing in the Bible is do not be afraid, do not fear. But what Adam did is what we all do is that we shrink back from God. We, we try to hide ourselves. Not that we can. I mean, remember when we're going through the book of Revelation, and Revelation, when the people knew God was bringing all this, and they called for the mountains to fall down on them to hide them. And even though they played the first hide-and-seek game, it didn't take them long for playing the next game. We find this in verses 12 to 13. The man said, when he asked what happened, the woman, you put me here, she made me eat the apple. And then Eve says, no, no, it was a snake, he made me eat the apple. And all of a sudden the blame game comes on. And we do that, we blame others. It wasn't my fault, I mean, if, if that's... If anything is more truer today in today's culture is how we blame everybody else other than ourselves. So how do you deal with shame? Guys, books have been written on this, so a 30-minute talk is not going to answer all the questions. But here's some things that I hope can help. One, how about if we take a lesson from Jesus about how he handled shame? What? Jesus had shame? His, his shame wasn't based upon what he did wrong. His, base, his shame was based upon what everybody else did to him wrong. Hebrews 12, 2, two through 6. Let us fix our eyes on who? Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, Endure the cross, scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, and this is what the writer, he, consider, consider Jesus, guys. If you want to get an example of how to live your life and even how to deal with shame, consider what he did. He endured such opposition from sinful man so that you 
will not grow weary and lose heart. He does not want you to lose heart. He does not want you to grow weary. He wants you to take a lesson from Jesus. And Jesus, who was naked on a cross, Jesus who was spat on, who was poked at, who was mocked, who was laughed at, I mean, things that some of you have had to experience personally. Horrible things. I can't answer the question of why this happened to you. I can't answer the question of why God would allow that to happen. I can't answer that. I can't answer that there's something powerful about how you deal with it and how others see you deal with it. He endured the cross by what it says, scorning it shame. This word scorning means despising, loathing, hating it. I think sometimes we just accept it. We just say, oh, well, that's the way it is, rather than dealing with it. Every fiber in Jesus' body hates the fact of what shame did, was doing to him. And I will say what shame is doing to you because the joy set before him is not just going back to heaven. The joy set before him is you. The joy set before him is what he can do, how he can help, how he can rescue. I mean, that's why Jesus came. He came to save, he was set free those who are in prison. And what bigger prison is there than shame? I mean, we always think prisoners in jail cells love. That shame is a prison, too, that's got many people locked away. And he despises the shame that has been put on you, the lies, the habits, the failures, the secrets, the things you've thought, the things you've done, the things you've seen, the doubt that you've had, the hatred that you have toward yourself. And he says, I've come to rescue us from that, to free us from that. And here's the deal. Guys, you cannot make a change, make shame go away by behaving differently. You have to believe differently. I mean, you can get up in the, in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. You can do that a lot. And so we need to do that. I'm not, not, nothing against that type of thing. But all the self-help books in the world aren't going to solve what only what Scripture and a belief of what God has done that will make a difference. A couple things here. One, he loves us unconditionally. We sing this song on Sunday morning, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He will take, he will take, what? Great delight in you. Some of you just need to hear that this morning. God takes great delight in you. Now, you don't understand. I do. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I've said, what I've seen, what has happened to me. God takes great delight in you. I mean, when I go out in my backyard and my grandkids are next door, just to hear, 
Papa! That does my heart. I don't care what the day's been like. I don't care what has happened during the day. I don't care what's happened during the week. It all melts away with, Papa! Some of you need to just uh, sit in a chair sometime and just imagine God saying your name with as much delight. He will quiet you with his love. Quiet me with his love. Guys, when, <laughs> when I get an embrace from little Hazel May, I say, I just need a Hazel hug right now. It melts things away. And some who have never felt that maybe here on earth, I want to tell you that God feels that about you. He will rejoice over you with singing. Another concept we have. God sings over you. I'd love to hear his voice, what it sounds like. He does not condemn those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God doesn't condemn you, you shouldn't condemn you either. He protects us and covers us, Psalm 36, 7. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings, that protection and cover. He searches and knows us, Daniel 2, 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness. And light dwells within him. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. He knows. You've made hidden from your spouse, you've made hidden from your kids or family members or friends. God knows. God knows what you think about when no one else is watching, when no one else is noticing you. He knows. And he wants to bring light to that. And when we bring that guilt and shame to God, that honors God because that's saying, God, I believe you are the Lord of my life. I'm bringing this to you. And some of you guys, some of you are going to have to bring it over and over and over again to convince yourself. This is what one author said. The same shame is such a powerful tool, Satan. It keeps you vulnerable to any negative coming your way, negativity coming your way. Shame is like a heavy chain holding you down, keeping you down. After way too many years of being told how unworthy you are, only God can break the chain. And slowly, I love that word, slowly, it becomes a rope, then a string, and then finally a thread that can be broken, releasing you from the shame. It's not like this. It's when I keep coming to God that he loves me unconditionally. I keep coming to God. He's not condemning me. I keep coming to God. He's going to protect and cover me. I keep coming to God. He searches and knows me by name. He takes delight in me. We've got to accept ourselves partly. 
put that down, acknowledging our strengths and weaknesses because we have both. Forgiving ourselves and forgiving others. Forgiveness is not forgetting, guys. I, I, there are things that have been said and done I, I can't forget. But I love the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is just taking your hands off the throat of the person. It's not going to go away. I'm just not going to do this. Separating who we are from what has been done to us or what we've done. And finding joy in who we are. Several times a year I'll make a list. And it's, it's not a prideful thing, please understand this. I make a list of the things that God has given me the ability to do it's in my journal. It's not for anybody else. It's just, I can do this. I can do this. I just started doing this. Where did that come from? I'm realizing that I am God's workmanship. And what, how shame can dissipate is to be in community with one another. As this way small groups, to be a part of a life group or some small group of people that hold you accountable, that know you. And I'm not saying you have to dump your whole dump truck out on them because, guys, no one knows everything. I mean, my wife doesn't want to know everything I think and goes through my mind. I guarantee you no one else does. It's just God and I do. But there are enough people close to me that know who I am, know what I struggle know what I deal with. And this passage hit me this morning as I was getting ready out of Matthew 11, where it's Jesus saying, come to me. Maybe it's given to me this morning because someone in this room needs to hear these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and Tired of carrying. Come to Jesus. His promise is I will give you rest today. Because tomorrow's another day. Today I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn what I did on the cross. I despise shame. Call it for what it is. I give it a name. It's not going to hide in the darkness anymore. I'll take what's responsible for me, but I'll deal with this. And he says, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let Jesus take away the Remember my mom, she had a little wheelbarrow on her shelf. It was always about, what what are you hauling around in your wheelbarrow? Because if you have a wheelbarrow, you're carrying a lot of stuff. I mean, it's more than you can carry here. You've got a wheelbarrow carrying all this stuff. Just wheeling around, wheeling around. When are you going to unload that? When are you going to stop carrying that? Take a lesson from Jesus. 
it's not like this. It's, I'm going to keep going after this. Every time that record plays, I'm going to choose to not listen to it. I'm going to choose to engage. I'm going to choose to believe what God says about me, not what the world says about me. Not what a mother or father said or did to you, or a brother or sister or an aunt or uncle, or a friend down the street. I wish I could change that. That's why I always want to start a SWAT team here. Spiritual whoop-ass team that we can send out just to... It'd be people who are not yet saved, but almost saved, you know, where they can do some justice, because that's what I would want to see happen. Sign-ups will be later today, if you're interested. I wish I could take what you've gone through away, but I can't. All I can say is that there's a God who calls out your name, You can't hide from him because he's going to chase you. That's why I love that song, Adam, Where Are You? And at the end, I love you. I know you've heard those words. I guess my challenge is when are you going to believe those words? That he loves you as you are. Come to him. Take that wheelbarrow and unload it. Today. It's probably tomorrow you'll have other stuff in your wheelbarrow. But today, he wants to give you rest. Father in heaven, I, I don't know all that has happened to those in this room, those here in my voice, I wish I could take those things away. I know I can't, so I, all I can do is point. And you experienced nakedness and shame and betrayal. And you did nothing wrong. You took every one of our sins in this room upon you and suffered the wrath of those sins so that we wouldn't have to. Father, for those who have experienced things at the hands of others, Father, may that burden, that chain, become a rope. And then whittle down just to a thread. May they believe who you are and how you them, that you delight in them, and then you will always call out, where are you, because you desire a relationship with us. Father, thank you that you do not require us to carry our burden. You ask us to carry each other's burden. You say, give us, give you our things that we're heavy and laden with, and you will take them. Father, today, may we hand them to you, I pray. In Jesus' name.